The story that Meredith just told comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Jesse, Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. And had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. Whatever might be true about our culture, it has to be said that we are a people who care about appearances. Scroll through Instagram, flip through any magazine, watch or stream any television show, and pay attention to the ads. It doesn't take long to figure out what they're selling. Looks. Sexy looks, mysterious looks, rich looks, sleek looks, innovative looks, successful looks. You can order a box of individually curated clothes, buy the perfect shade of makeup or hair dye, lease the right car and will drive you to success. And that success can be tailored to whatever it is you're trying to achieve. It feels like everything they're trying to sell us is about appearance. 
A few years back, Dolly Parton was interviewed about her success. And at one point, she told the interviewer, it costs a lot of money for a person to look this cheap. (laughs) Today's passage from 1 Samuel also speaks to our affinity for too often favoring appearance over substance. The passage is just one piece of a long narrative about the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. Saul had been God's chosen at one time, but as too often happens, Saul began, as they say, believing his own press clippings. He let all the wonderful things that had been said about him swell his head and his ego. Over time, he became more interested in erecting monuments to himself than seeing to the welfare of his people. By the time we get to this morning's passage in chapter 16, Saul's life had come grinding to a screeching halt. He appears to be suffering from some kind of mental illness, and he's clinging to power for the sake of power alone. That's when God decides it's time for a new king. Even worse, God tells Samuel, the prophet who gets credit for this Old Testament book, that he's the one who needs to break the bad news to Saul. To put that into perspective, imagine being the person whose job it is to tell Vladimir Putin that he gets to no longer be president of Russia. Anyway, God sends the prophet Samuel to Bethlehem to find a new king who will rule in place of Saul. The leaders of Bethlehem, figuring something's up, meet Saul at the city gates to find out exactly why he's there in their city. I've come to make a sacrifice, Samuel says, which is about half true. And he invites them to join him. One of the city fathers, Jesse, comes along and brings his sons, or seven of the eight of them anyway, The youngest is left back home to do the chores. I don't know exactly how this plays out, but over the course of the evening, all seven of Jesse's sons are paraded in front of the prophet in descending birth order, oldest to youngest. When Samuel first lays his eyes on Eliab, I'll bet his heart skips a beat. Oh yeah, this is going to be easy, he must be thinking. Eliab was Jesse's oldest. He was tall, he was handsome, he was responsible, like we firstborns always are. (laughs) Samuel is certain that someone as tall and as good-looking as Eliab will certainly win the favor of all the people of Israel. Reading this in our passage this week made me remember something I think I learned in one of my political science classes all the way back in college. So I did a little Googling, which... Stephen Skinner pointed out, I probably should have done some more because it might not be 100% right, but it works for the sermon, so I'm going to tell you anyway. (laughs) Did you know that the average height of an American president is almost six feet? And from 1900 to 2000, almost in every single presidential election, the taller candidate won over his shorter opponent. The popular vote In the popular vote, the candidate gets almost 60% of the vote compared to something like a third for the shorter guys. Sociologists call this heightism, the tendency to favor taller people 
over their more vertically challenged associates. And Samuel is about to do the exact same thing. Vote for the tall guy. But God speaks. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearances. But the Lord looks on the heart. One of the things we don't pick up in the English translation is that there's an important verb shift happening here in this passage. It's something that we miss when we don't read the original Hebrew. And if we did, we'd find that there's one verb that shows up over and over and over again in the text. The word is ra'ah, which means to see. It appears six times in these 13 verses. While it literally means to see, it's also meant to suggest an element of discernment. But that isn't the verb that's used here when God is talking to Samuel about Eliab. God says, do not look on. The Hebrew word is nabat. Do not nabat. Do not look on his appearance. The implication is that Samuel may be looking, nabat, but not seeing, ra'ah. Looking, but not seeing. That's the problem, isn't it? It's the problem with a culture like ours in an online age that's so concerned about appearances. You know, you may know the work of Neil Postman, He wrote an amazing little book nearly 40 years ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in an Age of Show Business. Even all those years ago, Postman suggested that the greatest problem with television may not be all the the violence and bloodshed, as bad as that is. Instead, he says, the biggest problem with television is that the screen seduces us into believing that seeing is knowing. Television tricks us into believing that what we see is in fact reality. It invites us to look and assume that we're learning something. It invites us to believe that if the man or woman is handsome or beautiful or likable or charming, then he or she is trustworthy and safe to follow. That's why political candidates are packaged and sold by image. In the last 40 years, I think this has just simply jumped from television to Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. But what if the most important things we can know about a person cannot be seen, like her thoughts and values or his character and substance? What if the way a person looks tells us almost nothing about who she or he really is? What if the most important realities in life are not visual at all, but rather spiritual, known through thought and word rather than through image and picture? That's the challenge Jesus issues the Pharisees in the first passage we heard from the Gospel of John. What if the old adage is true, that what you see is really not what you get? What if you can't trust your eyes or your feelings, or what you've always been told. It's the same challenge Samuel discovers when he tries to pick Israel's new king. God tells him clearly that Eliab is not the one. 
Abinadab, the secondborn, passes by, and it's not him. Shema, the thirdborn, walks in. It's not him either. The other four are paraded through and lumped into a nameless clump, all designated, though, as not chosen. Samuel is at the end of his rope. Are all of your sons here, he asks. That's when Jesse finally admits that there is one more, David, the runt of the litter. He says they left David behind to bring the herds in for the night while his older brothers tended to this more important work. I can't speak for you, but I find some relief in that. Beholden as we are to a culture that celebrates the rich and the famous and the powerful and the beautiful, here's one little guy who makes a difference. The youngest and the smallest of the eight brothers, a member of the tiniest tribe of Israel, the one whose father almost forgot him, the one standing ankle deep in mud and who knows what in the fields. This story reminds us that the person God chooses is more often than not the unfinished one, the unlikely one, the imperfect one. When God goes searching for the least likely candidate, The candidate will sometimes be you, even when you feel least up to the task, or maybe especially then, because the Lord looks on the heart. It reminds me of a line in the children's book, The Little Prince, when the writer says, it's only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. I hope that sounds like good news to you. In a world that tells us day after day that we need to live in the right neighborhood and drive the right car and have the right logo on our clothing or the right diploma on the wall, I hope this sounds like good news to you. Because if the Bible teaches us anything, it at least teaches us that the same truth that was whispered in Samuel's ear is true today. For the Lord sees not as humans see. Humans look on outward appearances. But the Lord looks on the heart. This all reminds me of a story that I love about Mother Teresa. And some of you know how much I love these stories about her. Not long before she died, Mother Teresa spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. The person who was introducing her described her as the greatest woman in the world. Mother Teresa, in her characteristic humility, dismissed those words. She stepped up to the microphone, all four foot eleven of her, and suggested if that were indeed true, you'd think God would have at least made her tall enough to see over the podium. (laughs) She went on to say, I'm nothing close to being the greatest woman in the world, but I'll tell you the greatest thing about my life. I've been able to be a tiny pencil in the hand of God, someone through whom God writes love letters to the world. That's the thread that runs through scripture and runs throughout history, reminding us time and again that it's the unlikely choice, the unqualified choice, the unassuming choice, the odd choice, who is, in fact, God's choice. So don't think you can dodge God by not having the right credentials. 
because outward appearances don't seem to matter to our God. God isn't looking for magnificent. God isn't looking for outstanding. God isn't looking for perfect. God is looking for unlikely people, as unlikely as you and me. A few tiny pencils with which to write love letters to the world. Amen. Let us pray. One thing we know, listener to our hearts, you are the one who sends us on your journey and waits for us at the final destination. In the wilderness, you stay beside us, knowing our grief, doubt, and struggle. When we sit in the pit of darkness, you are there beside us. One thing we know, healer of our lives, When we find ourselves in valleys veiled in shadows, you are walking alongside us, even though we may never notice. You open our eyes, removing the blindness that so often blocks our vision. Sometimes you even use the most unlikely things to heal us, smearing mud to clear our eyes. You know the depths of our hearts better than we do. And so, God, secure us in the knowledge that you desire our hearts to beat like yours. One thing we know, comforter of our souls, when we are weakened by the burdens of our lives, you come to us to rest your strengthening peace upon us. Do not allow us to keep that peace to ourselves but empower us to rise and offer it to others who know the wilderness too, for there are many that live in it day to day. O God, surround those with your healing touch who suffer in pain, mend those who recover from illness or injury. We pray for those known to us, for Ian Phillips, Mary Stuart Neely, and Bill Mentier. Comfort those who have lost loved ones, Remembering the families of Patty Acuff, Mary Adair Horde, and Julia Pulliam, reminding them that you have embraced them gently in death. One thing we know, God and community, holy in one, once we could not see you in every moment, but now our eyes are opened wide. And so we pray together that prayer your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us continue to worship God through our tithes and offerings.